Welcome to the Intravitreal Injection Podcast, a patient-focused series where Dr. John Pitcher explores different perspectives on the most commonly performed medical procedure in the world. Today, I have a very special guest uh, of one of my very dear patients. Um, we're going to call her Molly, just for anonymity, but uh, Molly is, is a patient of mine. Um, how are you doing today, Molly? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining. It's always very special when we can have a patient uh, on the podcast. And uh, this is a podcast that really is focused on the patients. And, uh, you know, it's great to have perspective from, uh, from people who have gone through it or who are going through it. And, you know, we also have perspectives from different doctors and experts. And so I think those two things together are very powerful way to communicate with patients and uh, who are going through the same thing that, that you're going through. So first of all, um, just as a way of an icebreaker, can you remember about when your first injection was or how many years ago you were, you've been getting? Oh yeah, I remember quite well because <laughs> it was a big shock to me. I diagnosed, um, like, I think it was like October. I'm not sure of the month, but it was 2014. Yeah. So about you did, you did not diagnose me. Um, I was referred to you by the person that did diagnose me. And so that was about five years ago, I guess, huh? So do you know yeah. about how many injections you've gotten total? Um, Estimate? Five, five times five, about 25 or between 25 and 30. So initially, were you, you were getting them a little bit more frequently, but now they're more spaced out? Right. Now they're more spaced out, right? Okay. Great. And why don't you tell me a little bit about, um, tell us a little bit about your, you know, the experience with the, with the first injection and, you know, kind of the, pro, you know, if you can remember, you know, it sounds like you do, but some of the details about, you know, how that process went and what, what you were feeling, your emotions. Well, interestingly enough, I re, um, there was a little there was a, a, a little song that used to play uh, when I was a kid, and it was talking about sticking a needle in your eye. Not mm-hmm. fun. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, I you know every time I had to go into the office and have this injection, it brought back the brought back that that saying, and it also made me very very anxious because it's like. You know, there's always a chance you can get an infection, blah, 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 or something terrible can happen to your eye. I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, so, yeah, it was very, very stressful in the beginning. And um, sometimes um, sometimes the procedures were not helpful. You know what I'm saying? The, the anxiety would increase uh, because of the provider. Now, with you, I, I developed a rapport with you, so I knew what to expect. And so when somebody suggested that I take, you know, t- or have another do- in, uh, doctor do it, I say, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I know what to expect from you. Well, that's, so, an, that's an important point. I think, you know, you, the doctor, the retina specialist develops a very close relationship with the patient because it's a very intimate procedure and um, you know, that there's a lot of trust that's placed um, in the doctor by the patient. So it sounds like it's gotten better since that, you know, first few times. Is that correct? 
Yeah, I um, I did a number of different things. I did some meditation. I did some um, some relaxation things. I I even thought I even talked about smoking marijuana for at one time. I never did, but um, I did discuss it with my medical doctor, and he suggested um, something for the anxiety just before the the. Um, the uh, procedure and of which he did give me, but after, but now it's like, since I know, you know, I know you, I trust you. I I'm uh, a little less, you know, anxious. And would you say that the anxiety of thinking or leading up to it sometimes is, you know, worse than the actual procedure? Exactly. Exactly. So the, the procedure itself for you Obviously, you know, we take our time and, you know, make sure you're, you know, as numb as we can get you and, um, you know, and, and clean the eyes so you have a pretty, pretty streamlined experience. So is it the, the injection itself, would you say, you know, to other patients that you, you feel like it's, you know, not, not as bad as sometimes you think it's going to be? Right, Exactly. And, you know, I, what else I've noticed, too, is the technician that does the, that preps you for the procedure um, and then afterwards um, clean, cleanses the, the um, eye, the total eye. That's very important. Uh, I, didn't, I, I didn't speak up this one time and I got home and my eye burned and burned and burned. Well, I figured out that they weren't rinsing it enough. So you have to, you know, they're the busy people, you know, they're doing, they're trying to do their things and and do it in a timely fashion, but patients need to speak up if they have any, if they're not comfortable, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And we're, you know, we're both our technicians and and retina specialists are very interested in, in making this as, as easy a process as possible because it is important. There's, um, you know, there are um, a lot of reasons patients may be worried about the injections or uh, you may, may not come back for an injection. And we want to minimize that because the injections are so critical for, for saving vision. Um, so I want to focus a little bit more on the psychology because, uh, you know, I am going to, um, we're going to review this with a couple of experts who, who've kind of studied this. And Talk to me more about the meditation and the relaxation techniques. What specifically was it that you were doing? Okay, um, actually, I went to a site at on um, YouTube and looked up um, uh, meditation just just for relaxation, and also that, and then also meditation for increased anxiety. I and mean, you can, it's very easy to do. You just go to, um, I have an app on my computer. So I just hit the app and then I just type in what I'm looking for. And it's really, really helpful. Um, I've done that. And then I've done some, um, also some visual things too. Um, on, and, and I can't remember what it's called. I'm sorry. But if there are uh, visual, visual, um, cues that you look at and, and that tends to relax me too do you know what the app is called um you look at? Just, just youtube it's you just a, the youtube you, just meditation yeah. on youtube yeah but i think that's great um 
And certainly, you know, focusing on something, something else, you know, helps people, helps people get through it. And I think the more you go through, a lot of people say, oh, you never really get used to it, but there are plenty of patients who I think it becomes a routine for them and, and it doesn't bother them to get an injection at all. And other people that really need, you know, extra, extra help and extra time. And, and, um, you know, certainly that it's, it's all worth it when it comes to, to keeping you seeing and, and making sure you can maintain your vision. So, um, exactly. the, the last thing is kind of in the context of your own, uh, mental health, you know, there are, there are some studies that, show that there are a lot of patients who have macular degeneration, which is, which is why you get the injections, correct? Right. There are, there is some overlap, you know, with anxiety and depression and it may be the thought of losing vision that creates anxiety. It may be the fact that it's a chronic illness and we know all chronic illnesses uh, can, can lead to, to problems with mental health. Um, but in the context of, of your own mental health, can you tell us a little bit about your med- medical history, mental health history before this and how you think the injections have kind of fit into that? Okay. So when I was like in my twenties, I was actually, um, um, diagnosed with di- depression. And so I've carried this and I'm 70, 72 years old now. So I've carried this all this time and I've taken medication um, over the years for depression, but later in life, I was diagnosed also with anxiety. And maybe I was anxious before and never communicated that, or maybe it wasn't noticed or whatever, but now I'm t- being treated for both with one medication. So it's an anti, anti-anxiety, anti-depressive medication. So, um, <clears throat> so I, you know, obviously, it, if you have this already it's going to become it's a problem so and then of course added on to the fact that somebody's sticking a needle in your eye then that just creates even more so um yeah it's hard for me and I've talked to other patients in your office and they said oh yeah this doesn't bother me at all I'm used to it now so I think for people who are who don't have the underlying it's I think it's not as not as traumatizing for them that people who don't have an underlying depression or anxiety. That's a a great way to put it. And I think you hit the nail on the head there that approximately a quarter of patients who are getting anti-VEGF, which is the injections that you're getting, um, do have depression and there is some overlap there. And I think the ones who struggle the most, you know, do have uh, potentially have had prior uh, mental health diagnosis. And so I really want the retina specialists who listen um, and, and family members of patients to be aware of that, that, you know, there is, uh, there does need to be awareness of the patient's uh, prior mental health conditions and, and how that factors in. So, and I, and I think you've done an excellent job. I think it's really commendable. You're, you've been sticking with the injections and, and doing a great job. Obviously we've been able to maintain really good vision overall for you, uh, even though you've had macular degeneration, wet macular degeneration for over five years now. So I really appreciate you coming on and and sharing your, your perspective. And I think a lot of other patients will appreciate it. Um, look forward to, to catching up with you in the office soon. And then, uh, maybe, maybe again on another episode. Good. I would love to do that. I'd love to share my story. Well, thanks again, Molly. Take care. 
All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Pleased to have um, a special guest, one of my one of my fantastic patients. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna call him Dave today. Uh, Dave has been receiving injections for a while, um, and um, thanks for thanks for joining me today. I'm happy to do so, and uh, looking forward to hearing what we're going to try and get done today. So let me start off by asking you uh, your your age and uh, what. Uh, what what reason you're getting the injections? Uh, my age is 81 years old, and I was diagnosed with uh, wet macular degeneration in my right eye probably about three and a half years ago. I was trying to think about when that occurred, but something like that. So you're, you've, you kind of have a little bit of a unique experience because you've uh, initially were enrolled in a clinical trial for injections, correct? That's correct. Uh, when I first came in, that was the question they asked me was, well, sure, you can do this, but we have a trial that's starting, and they explained to me that uh, how it would operate, and it seemed like a, a good thing to do. So I, I did, and I'm glad I did because uh, – I don't know. It just kind of got me. Uh, I had a little bit of a unique way of getting my first injections in that I just went to the clinical trial group and didn't have to uh, kind of participate in the normal mass group. Effort. So, tell, so tell me a little bit about um, how many injections you think you've had. Do you haven't. Do you have an idea of since then, few years, how many total you've you've gotten? Well, during the clinical trial, that went on for two years and seven months. And I theoretically got an injection once a month, but uh, basically there was a, a pseudo injection every so often. I don't know if it was it because they did, they went through the same procedure whether I got a real injection or just a fake injection. And the purpose of that was just to test uh, what my, how my eye was reacting to the injection. And uh, so I assume I got one at least every other month and maybe a little more often than that. And then how, how often are you getting them now approximately? And now I'm getting them every two months and uh, everything seems to remain stable at, at that level. Yeah, you've been doing really well. We've been able to maintain pretty good vision. Um, and so um, what are what are some of the things that you, you know, use your eye, use your vision for that you're th really thankful for? Well, I think that having both eyes somewhat functional, even though my right eye is, is tested around 2060, uh, even, you know, with my glasses, but, it, but at the same time, I think without that right eye, I wouldn't have any, uh, depth perception or, you know, be able to analyze how far things away were away without both eyes functioning somewhat. Yeah. And well, that's the main thing. 
And you've done a great job, you know, sticking with the program. Kudos to you because one of the main reasons that you preserved good vision and usable vision is by continuing to stick with the program. And I know you've had some, um, some anxiety in the past related to the injections. And do you want to talk about that and how you've been able to kind of overcome that? Yeah, I would like to. Uh, the first injections um, were made me pretty nervous. <laughs> One of the reasons is my wife had su- suffered a broken leg about, I don't know, a year, year or two before that. And uh, the doctor, who was Dr. Charlotte, who was the orthopedic person, said one of the things that she uh, really disliked was when she was going through med schools, participating in eye injections. <laughs> that made me nervous. But it turned out it wasn't as big a deal as I thought. And one of my things that I used to help me uh, be more comfortable during the process is that I meditate, uh, you know, briefly before the injection happens and I've, I've uh, been taking some classes in mindfulness uh, meditation and uh, I was glad I did because in that, for that particular case, it, you know, in, anytime you have anxiety, that's what meditation's for. So, yeah. And, and tell me a little more about the specifics of what you do in the, in the meditation that you're doing. Well, the, the main thing is to just focus on your body and, and you do that by just really fo- making your mind not think about things, but just focus on your breathing and your breathing just uh, sort of taking long, deep breaths at first and then just kind of in, go into a routine breath process and and it just uh, seems to take away the anxiety of having uh, getting the uh, injection. And what where is the class that you're taking? Is there a website or how how do you access that? Yes, uh, there is a, a a woman named Charlotte. Uh, is it Charlotte, no Michelle Michelle Duval, and the name of her uh, training is mindfulness. Uh, Meditation. And it's, uh, yeah, the mindfulcenter.com. And uh, matter of fact, she's doing the mindfulness training now via Zoom. Whereas uh, when we first took it, it was, uh, you know, a collective group. And, but it seems to work pretty well with, uh, with the Zoom orientation. So. Great. I would suggest, recommend that to anybody who is, you know, for anything, really. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of patients, you know, have mentioned different sites and YouTube and things like that. And everybody, every patient's different. So I think, you know, all my patients, um, you know, are, are fantastic about, you know, coming in and getting their injections. And, you know, I, again kudos to you for finding something that you know helps you some people have no problem with it but if you do have some anxiety clearly there are ways to get through it that allow you to continue getting the treatment you need to help preserve your vision so 
Um, I really appreciate you sharing that with me and um, coming on for a few minutes to, to share your, your side of things and um, certainly look forward to uh, seeing you again in the clinic next time and maybe have you on in another episode in the future. Well, I'd be glad to do that. And then in the future too, you know, I guess if anybody were really anxious about it and wanted to talk to a third party, I'd be willing to speak to them, but we'll get to that later. Uh, Cause that's, I just feel like, uh, it's a miracle that uh, you guys have the skills and the technology and so forth to uh, save your eye because I have a high school buddy who was a pilot who got macular degeneration probably 15 years ago and uh, he's now lost vision in both eyes and that's not good for an airplane pilot. <laughs> No, not good for anyone. And things no. have changed a lot. And fortunately, like you said, we've, we've got the tools we need to, to save the vision. So right. thanks again and uh, take care of yourself and we'll catch up later. All right. Thank you, Doc. And see you in a couple of months for sure. It's my pleasure to welcome two esteemed guests to the podcast who have expertise in the psychology of intravitreal injections. And the two guests that we have here are uh, Dr. Tariq Aslam of uh, Manchester uh, University. Uh, He is a professor of ophthalmology uh, at the University of Manchester and a consultant ophthalmologist specializing in uh, retinal disease including macular degeneration and other, uh, other macular and retinal conditions. Um, thank you for joining me, doc, Dr. Aslam. Thank you very much. Uh, it's, thank you for inviting me. And also a pleasure to welcome Dr. Hugo Senra. Uh, Dr. Senra is a clinical psychologist and a researcher with a background in adult mental health, psychotherapy, and long-term medical conditions and specializing in uh, depression and anxiety in adulthood, uh, as well as uh, specifically uh, an interest in patients with irreversible vision loss. Uh, Both are um, um, across the pond. Dr. Hugo Senra is at the University of Essex, and uh, they've both published on this subject. And uh, just briefly, uh, my interest in this subject is uh, mainly because I feel that it's underappreciated by uh, retina specialists. And I think uh, patients, in addition to being mostly concerned about their vision and retina specialists being mostly concerned about their vision, patients, uh, you know, have a, uh, a huge um, barrier sometimes psychologically uh, in these injections and has a huge impact in them. So uh, welcome, Dr. Senra, as well. I appreciate you joining me. Thank you very much for the attention. And uh, if one of you want to lead off by uh, kind of giving you an intro or background and how, how you decided to study the, uh, this topic of the psychological impact of intravitreal injections. Shall I start, Hugo? Uh, yeah. it's okay with you. I uh, have spent a long time, I had spent a long time working in uh, retinal disease, and especially my area of interest was in technology applications. So it was nothing really about psychology at all. And it was actually a patient that came in who'd had treatment with a really new advanced form of therapy and had done pretty well from it. She'd, you know, she'd managed to get decent vision. And 
as part of the trial process, and only because of the trial process, we'd taken a questionnaire asking her about her general health and actually her general well-being. And I was shocked to see that this lady who would spring into my room every month or so with a happy smile on her face, uh, ask me how I was, I'd ask how she was, was actually really, really depressed and clinically depressed. And that really got me to feeling slightly ashamed that I hadn't noticed this. But when we first started this interview, John, you asked me how I was and I'd said fine. And I asked her, you, you'd said fine. It's something we get used to saying. And actually patients that I know well, I fear, wouldn't necessarily tell me how they're feeling. And I think that might have been something that was happening. So initially I was talking about this to colleagues and, you know, I was worried maybe this is just my patients or maybe it's just Manchester. But when I looked around at the literature, it's actually a much bigger problem. It wasn't necessarily just my fault or, or our, our sunny climate in Manchester, but it was a really a worldwide issue. So that's when I reached out to Hugo, uh, an expert in clinical psychology, to so see if we could come up with a way to first off just you know, plot and, and work out what the problem was uh, and how much information we could find out about it. And he then helped me to design a big study, Hugo. So uh, I don't know if you want to talk about what happened with the study. Uh, well, uh, the, the, the main study that we have uh, conducted was uh, a mixed methods uh, study uh, where we interviewed uh, 300 patients and uh, more than 100 carers. Uh, we were aiming... Uh, at uh, investigating uh, how people experience um, receiving anti-VGF treatment for uh, wet uh, AMD uh, and to what extent these patients can also uh, present some uh, uh, clinical uh, symptoms of um, depression and anxiety. Uh, so these uh, studies, so we, we interview these patients at the macular a treatment center and um, uh, so the, the idea was to know more about how what kind of sources of, of anxiety and stress they could present uh, related to the, the, the disease and related to treatment um, and and the findings were in some way were a little bit intriguing because um, uh, the, the great majority of our patients, they were not visually impaired, so they were not uh, formally uh, visually impaired. They, they still have um, good sight, uh, or what we call normal sight, or not being uh, uh, visually impaired. But the, 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 um, the prevalence of depression, the clinical depression, anxiety among these patients were quite similar to what we have found in patients with uh, visual impairments, which was very intriguing. So we, we, when we explore the possible routes for explaining the fact that these patients have the same rates of depression and anxiety, despite uh, having uh, normal vision or not being visually impaired, we found that some common sources of anxiety and depression were related to anticipatory anxieties uh, around the idea of going blind, uh, 
um, around the idea of uh, treatment not being effective to um, halt the disease progression um, and related to uh, also, which was very intriguing as well, the idea of going blind because of the injections. Some of them also report that. So the what we have seen in our study was basically uh, that um, the the uh, anxiety and stress related to AMD and and, uh, and even related to the, the treatments uh, cannot be necessarily related to uh, vision loss, but can be associated with anticipatory anxieties or the idea of going blind in the future or losing sight in the future, which was very interesting because uh, traditionally in the literature, what we have seen is a, a direct association or a, a direct correlation between vision loss or visual acuity and, and symptoms of depression and anxiety. That's, that's fascinating. The fact that it's not that they are visually impaired, but they think they could become visually impaired and therefore their level of anxiety or, you know, tendency for depression is, is similar. It's an, it's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible to me. And Dr. Aslam, you may, you may um, agree with this is how much talking to patients about getting injections, patients are oftentimes very hesitant or reluctant or, um, you know, express, uh, that they do not want to continue injections or they you get that sense from patients and you ask them what what's the worst part about it is it you know is it the pain is it the you know it, you know what is it after the shot you know uh, irritation and, and oftentimes it's no it's leading up it's thinking about it it's you know yeah. time before so john uh, one of the things that was really interesting for me was that a lot of my creek preconceptions were blown away. I was exactly the same as you. I would have thought it was just at the time, but there are lots of things that came out from this that made us realize that it's much more complicated and much more, uh, much uh, broader than we actually thought. So as Hugo said, some of the high levels of anxiety came from people who actually had good levels of vision, but were worried about it dropping, for example, to below driving. You can imagine some of those people, in retrospect, being much more anxious than people who already had uh, 636, for example, in, in our terminology, or lower vision dropping to even lower. Um, some of the anxieties were, were in patients right at the beginning of injections, but equally, patients were also anxious right at the end. So, um, And then there were some items of sources of anxiety which shouldn't have been there at all. So some patients thought that at the moment of injections, that's when they might get the vision loss that we always talk about in the consent process. You know, they were thinking it would, if it was going to happen, their endophthalmitis or wherever the sudden cause of vision loss would be there on the table. And some of them would be thinking that the needle is going to be going straight into the center of the eye. So as we concentrate when we first see patients uh, on the consent process, and we literally read out a list of all the horrible things that can go wrong, don't we? Mm. And we, we may be giving them a sort of slightly biased perspective on it because we have to medical legally, but actually they don't get enough, I think, support and advice and reassurance and education about what the process is actually going to be for them. Um, and that was one of the things we thought was lacking in our, in our approach. So Hugo, could you speak a little bit about 
the numbers? Like what percentage of patients are affected by, significantly affected by anxiety and depression, patients who are receiving intravitreal injections, in this case, for macular degeneration? Well, the, in our study, uh, uh, we found, um, in, the, the, in terms of clinical depression and anxiety, um, what we found was that uh, about 12% uh, uh, of people that we have introduced, so 12% of um, people with uh, uh, 300 patients that we have introduced, 12% showed clinical levels of depression and 17% uh, clinical levels of anxiety. These numbers are within what we have found in the literature, in a general literature on AMD. So if we look at uh, literature about the prevalence of depression and anxiety among AMD patients in general, and even among uh, adults with vision loss, we have found similar rates of uh, clinical depression and anxiety. Um, well, the numbers can vary a lot. Uh, these are within the range, but they can vary a lot. So what uh, some studies have reported much higher levels of depression and anxiety. But these numbers are, are higher than general population and are within the range of um, uh, patients with vision loss in general, adult patients. The other thing was that uh, what we have also explored was, was the um, different sources of anxiety, but non-clinical anxiety. So we have investigated clinical anxiety or clinical symptoms of anxiety, but we have also explored um, uh, anxiety, uh, non-clinical anxiety. So sources of anxiety and types of anxiety related to treatment and related to the disease uh, as reported by, by patients. And what we have found in that respect was that um, uh, more than 50 percent, about 56 percent of people reported uh, anxiety related to receiving anti-VGF treatment. Uh, and, and the main sources of anxiety that might explain partially why these some of these people are depressed and, and anxious uh, were things like, as I said, anticipatory anxiety of going blind, um, uh, pain experienced and discomfort when receiving injections, the fear of going blind because of the injections. Um, uh, other things were uh, related to uh, the burden uh, experienced uh, when uh, having to um, uh, go to the hospital uh, once per month uh, or more than once per month. So the hospital visits as well. Um, and so basically uh, these were the, the main the, the, the main sources of anxiety uh, and also the the idea uh, the idea uh, it's very important as well was the idea that the treatment cannot be might not be effective uh, and and they they experience some discomfort and some stress related to receiving these intravertebral injections but even so the 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 outcome the final outcome might not be as good as they they, they wished so the, the the idea of the treatment might not be effective. The idea of they can go blind uh, despite the uh, having being received uh, the, the, the treatments. Uh, the idea um, that the treatment itself can, might be in some cases uh, harmful as well. 
Um, uh, yeah, basically, these were the main sources of anxiety that can explain why some people uh, uh, were uh, presenting uh, clinical levels of anxiety and depression. The other thing is that some of these patients have also some a prior history of uh, psychiatric uh, problems, which uh, in some way uh, can uh, make them more likely to present symptoms of anxiety and depression. Not necessarily, because we, we have different uh, types of psychiatric problems and not all of them can be associated with depression and anxiety, but it might be um, a risk factor for having, for struggling uh, uh, more uh, about these treatments and, and, and the, uh, the idea of uh, losing sight uh, when they have a prior history of, of psychiatric problems as well. Yeah, the, the patients who I interviewed or spoke with uh, in the first part of this episode uh, did have history of uh, prior mental illness and specifically depression and anxiety. And, um, you know, I think that's an important thing for, for retina specialists to be aware of and pay attention to. Um, Dr. Senora, what are some things that patients who are listening to this podcast, what are some things that they can do potentially that can, that can help? Well, I think one thing that can be very important is to speak with doctors, is to talk with their doctors openly about the, uh, what they can expect from the treatments, uh, whether or not the treatment can be harmful, because we know that the, the risk is very minor. Uh, I think some kind of education they can uh, benefit from doctors and healthcare professionals regarding the uh, the real side effects and the real implications of treatment. I think it's very important. A patient-doctor communication. I think it's it's key. It's it's key for um, improving their uh, uh, confidence on, on uh, about the treatment. Uh, I think it's very important for doctors uh, to uh, uh, be aware that uh, some of these patients they can be suffering in silence. So it's very important to talk to them openly to try, try to explore uh, uh, how they are feeling about the treatment and the idea of having AMD uh, to try to uh, detect, tackle uh, this problem. Because we know from our experience and from the literature that the great majority of people uh, having vision loss and AMD, they are not receiving uh, any kind of um, uh, uh, treatment or any kind of attention uh, for mental health or well-being problems. Uh, and that's, that's in, uh, an international problem. It's not only in, in, in the UK, it's in many countries. So I think patients can uh, feel comfortable to uh, talk openly about what they are experiencing, what they are feeling, because doctors, when doctors know more about their experience, they can have, provide uh, further help uh, for improving their mental health and well-being uh, and refer them to a specialist, a psychologist, or a, a psychiatrist, or even to provide some kind of education and, and information about the real implications of treatment, uh, which might improve their confidence on anti, anti, in, in, in anti-VGF uh, treatments and um, reduce the uh, anxiety around the idea of uh, going blind because of the injections, which is very unlikely, as, as we know. Um, so I think that the communication is good. I think patients uh, can talk more about what they are experiencing 
uh, and that communication, that open uh, communication channel, might improve their their, their uh, general experience of treatment and, and 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 make doctors and nurses more aware of what they are experiencing or what whether or not they are anxious. Uh, because sometimes, as I said, they are suffering silence and, and it's very hard to detect these anxieties because they, they don't talk about them. Yeah, that's, that's, that's excellent. And my, both the patients we talked to also, uh, in addition to speaking with me about the troubles they were having in their, their past history, found some meditation techniques and mental uh, awareness techniques that they could use at the time of the injection, so right during the injection. And um, I also, I've also found that patients, if they know somebody who, either a family member or a friend who has gone through the process, they're much more likely to uh, have lower levels of, of anxiousness uh, related to their, their visit. And so um, speaking with other patients, perhaps listening to this podcast, listening to some patients that I've interviewed can be helpful as well. So I'm going to turn to uh, Dr. Aslam. As far as what retina specialists can do specifically, what do you recommend for for the doctors to do um, that, that can help? And perhaps you have some other things for patients as well. Yeah, so I think uh, Hugo's you know, key message of communication is an important one. And even uh, listening to your previous podcast, I think that's brilliant. And I think Molly specifically brought up that the relationship between her and the physician was an important one. So in the UK, at least, the emphasis has been on speeding things up, you know, massive clinics and injections, and, and we're sort of limiting time. And especially now in the current era, time is being limited even more that we can spend with patients. But actually, in terms of their well-being, spending more time with them would be good. I've sort of our plan here in Manchester is sort of split into three different areas. Firstly, in terms of supportive. So I think what we try and, try and do is enhance the information we give to patients. So they're not just left with um, the, the fears and, and the scares from the consent process, but actually have a booklet that is directed towards them. We've always had booklets and information, but we, we didn't know that patients actually have read it or understood it. And we found in our study, actually, people even later on, people who had been under treatment for a couple of years still had misapprehensions, sorry, uh, misconceptions about the process. So it's important to provide information that is updated and it's updated with not what we think patients want to know, but what, we, what patients express they want to know. Uh, it's important to check the comprehension and then um, also, other ideas might be in terms of introducing a diary that patients can have so they can see their progress. Be a part of the control uh, of, their, of their own symptoms. And we, uh, right at the beginning uh, of this podcast, I talked about how I saw this patient all the time and she'd always say she was well. So it may be that there's a role for having a screening questionnaire uh, just a very, very quick one would do where you're actually not in front of somebody, but you have a piece of paper and you can express on that more freely how you've been feeling. And sometimes that can be much more sensitive, a measure of whether your patients have issues or not. And then if issues are brought up from that, then it's important to be reactive and respond to them. So 
there may be some patients who have misunderstandings that you need to correct. It may be that they need more uh, more intense and longer chats, for example, with what we call iCommunity liaison officers or separate groups of individuals we have in our hospital. It may be that things like low vision aids or particular uh, particular problems they're having with vision are causing problems for them. And then finally, there may even be really patients who are really suffering a lot. And Hugo mentioned clinical levels of depression. So that's not just, you know, feeling down about things day to day or, you know, uh, I've not been able to do this or my mother-in-law's coming over and I'm feeling down with that. But this is depression where patients aren't enjoying their life. They're not seeing the funny side of things. They've lost interest in their appearance. They don't look forward to enjoyment with any activities at all. So it may be that when some patients have reached that level, uh, with the screening questionnaires, we can find out about that and then refer them on for more medical help. So it's a, it's a broad range of different issues, I think, uh, that we just need to be aware of a little bit more uh, and be concerned about. That's great. Yeah, fantastic message. And telling, you know... Can I, can I, can I just add something? Uh, sure. Can I just add something? Uh, a very quick remark, because we, we've recently conducted a, a systematic review on the available... Uh, psychological and psychosocial uh, treatments for people with AMD and vision loss. And what we found in the literature is that there, are, that there is still very limited uh, evidence on what type of treatments might be effective for these patients. Uh, because it's a very specific kind of uh, well-being and mental health issue. Uh, so the traditional psychological and psychiatric uh, uh, treatments that we have available currently, they are not necessarily the best ones for these people. And what the, the, the systematic review also revealed was that uh, the more tailored the treatment is, as Tariq mentioned, so the more we adjust the, the treatment or the, uh, the psychological support that we offer to patients, the more tailored this um, uh, support is uh, the, the the more effective it might be because the uh, people uh, will benefit from uh, uh, some kind of psychosocial or, or psychological support that is uh, able to tackle these particular sources of anxiety around treatment around the condition vision loss etc. So traditional psychological techniques might not be necessarily the best ones for these people. And we have, so these, these diaries, these groups that Tariq mentioned, they can be very, very important uh, to help patients. So just as we customize the medical treatment for each condition and each patient, selecting a correct drug, correct interval, correct procedure, selecting the correct ways to help them psychologically is just as important. And specifically, I think, encouraging the, the communication piece to identify and get to the root of what exactly is the one thing. If there is one thing that is particularly contributing, as you mentioned, fear of vision loss, fear of the unknown, fear of pain, each of those may have a different solution and uh, each patient is different. So um, it's, that's a really great message. I think this will provide a lot of encouragement uh, and positivity for patients to, to be aware that, you know, they do have control over this subject and that there are a lot of answers that retina specialists can give them to help alleviate some of these sources of stress. So last question is, um, 
is is there more going on currently as far as studying this topic why why do you think it's not studied and, and why do you think it's maybe not been studied as much in the past you good do you want to take that or should i can yeah, yeah, either of us could talk for for a long time on that but who, do you yeah, want to okay oh, yes, please. yes please okay go ahead yeah no, you, you, you can take it, you can take the oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, John, um, we've, th- this came about as by chance for me. And as an ophthalmologist, I have to say, I'd sort of gone into the habit of chatting to patients, but I'd never really have as much time as, as I'd like to. Uh, and so when it first arose that this was happening, that's when I started uh, looking into things a lot more. Um, I think that it's been difficult getting, we, myself and Hugo have tried to get more research grants to do more work. Classically, when you want to get some, to do a piece of research, you have an intervention, like an injection, and you have an outcome measure, like vision, and you can very easily then write a project that will make a very, very clear scientific uh, experiment. But this field is very, very complicated in terms of all the different facts that we've talked about that can affect things. So you can, I wouldn't have wanted to do a study which just had one intervention because it probably wouldn't work. Like you said, we have to tailor things to individual patients. And then how do we measure the outcome? Uh, you know, when 12% of patients have depression, then how do we measure it? And do we have a group that is placebo that doesn't have interventions? What do we say to doctors if they're in the placebo group? Are they not supposed to talk to patients? So it's it's very difficult to come up with a study. Now we have managed to, but then in the what happens normally when you try and apply for grants, you're up against other uh, grant applications, and because I think this is such a hard field, it. Uh, invariably you will be pushed to the side a little bit by other more straightforward objectives. And then I think it hasn't really uh, hit home how important this is as a topic. There are lots of uh, excitement around things like artificial intelligence, which I also work in, and technologies. And a lot of uh, researchers are drawn to those sorts of fields. So it's a combination of factors, but I really do hope... uh, that uh, interest like yours, uh, interest from patient groups, will push this field a little bit more to the front where it deserves to be. Yeah, I agree. I hope so as well. And, and I really appreciate both of you coming on and sharing your experience and uh, contributing to this patient-focused podcast uh, about intravitreal injections. And I, I hope that you guys can continue uh, some of the the research and interest that you have in that, that I think will really help, uh, help patients in the future. So thank you again for coming on and uh, perhaps we can um, meet in person, uh, in the future or in a, in a future podcast. So I appreciate again, and you guys take care and, uh, have a great, uh, rest of the day. Thank you. You too. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the intravitreal injection podcast. Please leave us a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Follow us on Twitter at the IVI Podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. Until then, remember, when it comes to intravitreal injections, there's more than meets the eye.